0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. If you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The Mystery of Marriage. And you might look at this title and be like, mystery? What do you mean, mystery? mystery? Because in a sense, marriage is so familiar, right? It, it's like a lot of people are married. You never go introduce your wife to somebody and they're like, you what, you're married? I've never met. You know, like that's not the case. A lot of people are married, but in another sense, there's a lot of mystery surrounding marriage because once you jump into marriage, there's a lot of stuff that, is hard to understand. There's a lot of stuff that's going on that maybe doesn't make sense to us. And so we are in the fifth week of this sermon series, and we've been going uh, each week. We've been sitting in the same passage, Ephesians chapter five, where the Apostle Paul is talking uh, to wives and the husbands of this dynamic of of marriage and how it points to Christ and the church. And we've been pulling out different aspects, different nuances of marriage. And up to this point, we've been doing a lot of big picture stuff. We're talking about the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the power of marriage. And today, we're going to start moving into some of the nuts and bolts of marriage. We're going to start getting into the dynamics, the roles that we see between husbands and wives. Now, if you're married, it won't take long for you to realize that there are some significant differences between you and your spouse, right? Just... From a basic perspective, she's female, you're male. And there are certain physical characteristics that are obvious like that, but there are also some more subtle, emotional, social dynamics that are more or less prominent depending upon each gender. An Adam's apple isn't likely to create major differences within marriage, but levels of testosterone or estrogen probably will. There's, there's also a tendency, I don't want to say this is the case in all situations, but men are generally less emotionally aware than their counterpart, and so there's a sense where tension, these differences, can create difficulty within marriage, not to mention there are these learned ideas that, that we receive from the culture at large, or even from our family experience or, or media, uh, where that are informing our views of marriage, there's Almost always an expectation for the other spouse, right? The, that you do X, Y, Z, and I'll be responsible for A, B, C. And, and when we get in marriage, a lot of times we have different ideas about what those roles look like, what it looks like to be a marital unit. And then we get to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, touching on hot-button words like, wives, submit to your own husbands, and and saying that the husband is the head of his wife. A lot of this stuff makes people uncomfortable, and so there are a lot of questions circulating. There's a lot of misconceptions and confusions around this idea of marriage rules. Now, the, the aim of today's sermon uh, is to show that having diversity in roles as a marital unit there 's there's, there's differences, yes, but there 's unity there 's equality. And really what is a picture of painting is, is a, a picture of completion. And, and this week we are this is kind of laying the foundation for this week we 're getting to some big picture stuff here, and then next week we 're going to dive into a little bit more of specifics. Uh, but but what, we're, what we're trying to see here, uh, the key to understanding, uh, the key to a joyful marriage is lies in fulfilling our own divinely appointed gender roles. And I realize that this is wildly controversial. And so while I'm not talking logistics today about who does dishes or who mows or who pays the bills, though that, I think that is a, a healthy conversation to have in marriage. What we're talking about today is men being masculine and women being feminine. What does that mean from a biblical perspective? What kind of roles or what kind of characteristics come along with that? And in a time where there's a lot of cultural confusion when it comes to things about gender, we're in the middle of a a gender revolution, there's all kinds of, of different opinions that people are trying to, to level out or flatten the different contours of masculinity and femininity, trying to interchange the different roles, but, but Scripture shows us that God's design for marriage is more beautiful than that. It highlights the differences between man and his wife by promoting diversity in marriage between one man and one woman, marriage is better. Marriage is complete. Now to see this, we, we need to go back to the beginning, right, where God creates marriage. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. And, and I, today I've got a bunch of quotes. So I've got, I've got this quote that I want to share with you from Francis Schaeffer. It's important that we go back to Genesis. Here's what he says. In some ways, these chapters in Genesis are the most important ones in the Bible. For they put man in his cosmic setting and show him his pe- peculiar uniqueness. They explain man's wonder and yet his flaw. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in, in in uh, verse 3, or actually he does that in verse 22, when he's, or in chapter 5, uh, when he's unpacking. Um, so if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. It's right at the beginning of your Bible. I'm getting there, getting there, getting there. There it is. And we're going to go back here. And actually, a couple weeks ago, we, we landed here for a moment. And so some of this might sound familiar, but I want to take a, a new angle at this morning. Uh, so, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God says, It is not good for man to be alone. Now, remember, this is before sin entered into the world, right? So, so God is creating, He's creating everything good. And then he's, He creates man, and, and He looks at Adam. And he says, It's not good that Adam be alone and so we see this natural deficit in Adam that there's a sense of incompleteness that there that this was his flaw this was where he was lacking that it wasn't good for him to be alone. Now, the question is, why is that? Why why is it not good for Adam to be alone? Because after all, he's in a garden. He's in this this lush garden. Things are going well. He's got this really intimate relationship with God. Why is it not good for Adam to be alone? And, And the reason for that lies in how God created Adam. Because Adam was created in the image of God it means that he was created for relationship because God himself from eternity past to eternity future is in relationship with himself. So let's, let's take a look. We're actually going to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And we see in the beginning, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, now as we progress, we're not going to go verse by verse through here like we normally do. But, but what I want you to see here is, is how God is creating. In day one, God creates Light, which he calls day, and he creates darkness, which is called night. And he looks at it and he says, this is good. And then he, the next day, on day two, he creates the sky or or the heavens and the water. He separates the two from each other. Day three, he creates the dry land and the seas. It looks at it and says it is good. Now you can see here as God's creating, there there are these opposites. There's, There's diversity here in creation that he's creating complementary counterparts. Night and day, dry land and sea, heavens, earth. And then the next three days of creation are spent filling those spaces. And day four, he fills the heavens. Day five, he he creates creatures in the air and the sea. Day six, he creates creatures that live on the land. And and the apex of God's creation lies in him creating humanity. God creates man. Now, something significant happens here in this this creative narrative here. um, Because here in Genesis 1.26, we see God uh, talking to himself. He says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Now the question is, who is God talking to here? When he says, let us Make man in our, in our image. There's this plural nature of God. You wonder, is he talking to the animals now? Is, is God schizophrenic? No. Who is he speaking to? God is speaking to himself in this plural sense. And you might think, well, I thought, I thought Christianity was monotheistic, right? One God. Yes, it is, but, but the Christian God is unique. That is, one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the word that theologians have, have ascribed to this notion, God being one in three persons, is called the Trinity. That God is, we can see God in three equal and distinct persons, and these equal and distinct persons are living perfectly in relationship with one another. Now, listen to how Cornelius Plantinga, what a great name, listen to how Cornelius, my buddy Corny, describes the relational nature of the Trinity. He says, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. We see this dance in the Trinity. We see this this promotion of the different members of the Trinity where, where, where the Spirit promotes the Son and the Son promotes the Father and the Father sends the Spirit. Now, I realize that this is a difficult concept, so let me maybe break this down a different way. In 1 John 4, 8, we're told that God is love. Not, not that God is loving, but God himself is love. Now, if God is singular in his personhood, how can God love? Because before before all creation, all that existed was God. And God doesn't change from yesterday, today, or or tomorrow. God is consistent throughout. He's unchanging. And so if God is singular, how can he love what is not there? Especially when we're told that love, in 1 Corinthians 13, love isn't self-promoting. Love doesn't Boast. See, love isn't love unless there is a distinct recipient to love. You can't just be a lover in general, right? You think about the things you love. You don't just say, "Oh, I love." Well, what do you love? Well, I love my kids. I love the Oakland Raiders. I love. I love nice fall days. I love heaters. Right? We, we set our love on something, and in setting you know, our love on something, we become loving. Now, this shows us that, that before the world was created, God has existed in these three persons, and among these three persons was love just flowing back and forth from one another. In fact, we see this when, when John opens up his gospel and tells us who Jesus is, he says, "In the beginning was God, and the, or in the beginning was the word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God." He's speaking, and the Word became flesh. He's speaking of Jesus, that in the beginning, before creation, Jesus was with God. And even in, in Genesis chapter one, as he's talking about the creation narrative, he shows us that the Spirit of God is there hovering over the waters. From eternity past, God has existed, one God in three persons, and this is how God can be loving. That's how God is loving. And because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are constantly giving glory to one another, constantly loving one another, God is infinitely and profoundly happy in and of himself. There is a sense of completeness to God. Not, not just a sense of there is completeness to God. That the Trinity is satisfied in themselves. There is no unmet need among them. Which means that God in himself is completely satisfied. He's abundantly joyful and shockingly selfish, self, not selfish, selfless in the way that he loves. Now, I hope, my hope is that this confronts our view of God. A lot of us think that God created the world and created humanity so that he could get something from us, that he needs something from creation. But if God is satisfied in the Trinity, it doesn't mean that He needs our attention. God doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our reluctant obedience. He didn't create us to get joy, but in order to give joy, because He's already happy. And so what we see here is creation is an overflow of the joy that God has in Himself. And so, as his creation, we are made to enjoy what he enjoys, namely himself. That God has created us to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. So we go back to Genesis chapter one and we see, okay, God is creating it. And when he says, let us make man in our image, then in verse uh, 27 of chapter one, it goes on and says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this is interesting for two reasons. I think this is really profound for two reasons. There is something profoundly similar about man and woman. It shows us that there's a shared characteristic that both male and females have been created in the image and likeness of God. This means that they are equal in dignity, value, and worth. And this isn't This isn't rooted in in gender characteristics because Adam is masculine and and Eve is, is feminine. The equal dignity, value, and worth is completely rooted in that they were created in the image of God. And sharing this characteristic... God gives both of them an important task. That they have the same vision. They have the same mission. And that is to fill the earth and to subdue it. This is known as the creation mandate. Now both male and female, both Adam and Eve, both both, uh, both are essential pieces to accomplish this task. And what we think about most of the time, we think of this in, in terms of procreation, right? That, that it's essential to have a male and a female, to have babies, But what God is envisioning here extends beyond baby making. He's he's talking about culture making, building neighborhoods, developing engineers and laborers and artists and teachers and doctors to take the natural resources that God has created and for them to shape them and craft them in a way that makes something beautiful. Beautiful. And this is a mandate. This is is a call for both men and women to do together. It's not a thing where men go out and do this while the women stay at home. This is something that happens together, that they are co-laborers, co-culture creators. So we see that there's shared value. That's that's fascinating. That's really important for understanding creation. Now, the, the other reason why this is interesting is because the diversity pattern that we saw in in the first six days of creation or or the first three days of of day and night, land and sea, this diversity pattern continues. God creates complementary parts in, in that Adam is man and Eve is woman. Now with the animals, gender is assumed. But in humanity, Gender is celebrated. That both man, that both are made in the image of God, but they're they're made distinct from one another, that they have significant differences, that, that they are equal, but not equivalents. And though they are equal in importance, these this gender role that are assigned to them, they're not interchangeable, nor are they reversible. And so to understand this, we have to really dive into the differences and how God made Adam from Eve and really how he made them distinct from the rest of creation. Now, now when God began to create in, the, in those first six days, he would speak. That's all he would have to do. He'd have to speak, and then it became. But with Adam, God created differently. He, he went and got on his hands and knees. He got his hands there. He, he, he piled up a, a silhouette of man from the dust. Genesis 2, 7 tells us this. He, he piles up dust and he breathes life into his nostrils. And like that, Adam is alive. Now, the way that God makes Eve is even different from Adam. He doesn't pile up another dust lump and blow into her. What what he does is something different. He brings Adam to a deep sleep. He puts him under. And while Adam is in this deep sleep, God opens him up. And and we're talking Adam is vulnerable to God. Because at this point, Adam's realized that he's lonely. It's not good for him to be alone. And so Adam is entrusting his life to God. And God pulls out a rib from Adam. Adam. And taking this rib, God forms Eve around that rib. In a sense, she's doubly refined. She doesn't come from the dirt. She comes from the side of her future husband. And in creating this way, God creates and he blesses the dual modality of female and male. This, This isn't a social construct. This is something that God himself has invented, male and female. And, and what Adam wakes up, he, he wakes up to meet this hot mama, right? The, the one that he's been waiting for. The, the one that, while all the other animals left him unsatisfactory as a partner, this, this woman, he says, this is at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, in this moment, Adam has this realization He's saying, I get it now. This makes sense to me. I see what I was made for. I see that this is the counterpart that now makes me complete. I have finally found my better half. It's as if Eve were the missing puzzle piece that nothing else in creation could fit. See, Adam sees the equality here. He sees that this, this woman is for me. He sees that she's made in the image of God and he's not threatened by her. He dotes over her. But then he goes on in, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, he goes on in saying, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this is loaded with significance, and it even, even this short sentence speaks to some of the distinct roles that God embeds in the created order. Now, if you remember, God gave Adam the authority to name the animals. He, he paraded them before him, and Adam assigned names to them. That was part of his responsibility, his authority that God had appointed to him in the garden. And here, well actually all throughout scripture, we we can see how naming something or something, uh, someone or something signifies some kind of God-given authority. See, God does this in naming Adam. God also does this when he renames Abram to Abraham. He does this when he, he renames Saul to Paul in the New Testament. And this isn't an uncommon notion for us because parents, what do you do? You name your kids, right? That, that's a sign of your parental authority to appoint a name to your child. Kids do this with their pets. right? That's, that's a sign of of authority. And so as God's appointed namer, with having some, some piece of authority, Adam names her woman because she is from man. Now he is realizing she's unlike animals, that she is like him in dignity, value, and worth. But this also makes note of their complementary distinctness. There's There's anatomical differences between Adam and Eve, even down to to every cell being stamped with an XX or an XY chromosome. Now this complementary fitting between man and woman isn't something that we can just downplay or or bypass. It's important to the overall narrative of Scripture. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. If you believe in what it says in Genesis 1 about God making heaven and earth, and the binaries in Genesis are are so important, heaven and earth and sea and dry land and so on, and you end up with male and female. It's all about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. The last scene of the Bible is the new heaven and the new earth, and the marriage of Christ and His Church. It is not just one, or sh- it's not just one or two verses here, and-, and which say that this or that. It's an entire narrative which works with its complementarity. So that male plus female marriage is a signpost or a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and new earth. See, this is one of the reasons why same-sex marriage isn't compatible with a biblical view of marriage because it's just not diverse enough. Pastor Ray Ortland says the ultimate human relationship is presented to us as a complementary of differences, not a duplication of sameness. And so we see in marriage, having diversity present, there is a complementary beauty because the weakness void of one gender emerges the strengths of the other. Men reflect God's glory in one way while women reflect God's glory in another. Now, Sam Andrei Andradius says that gender comes in specialties. Specialties are things that we all might do sometimes, but the specialist focuses on especially doing them. We may do many things for each other that are the same, But the gender magic happens when we lean into asymmetries. Just as physically both males and females need both androgen and estrogen hormones, it is the relative amounts that differ in the sexes. So the gender distinctives are the things that both men and women may be able to do and do do, but when done as specialties to one another, they propel relationships. Now, this unpacks a a big question here. What are gender specialties? Now, most of our ideas about gender specialties are adopted from culture, and and a lot of times we don't even realize it. Like a fish doesn't realize the water that it swims in. See, what may be masculine on one side of the globe might be completely different on the other, and it varies, masculinity, femininity varies in expression from culture to culture. Shockingly, Scripture doesn't necessarily define masculinity and femininity in cultural ways. What the Bible presents as what is masculine and what is feminine is transcultural. That means that Scripture gives a definition of masculine and femininity that, that overrides all of the other cultural narratives. Now, I think that Scripture, in a lot of ways, is grossly misunderstood. A lot of people look at the Bible and think the Bible or Christianity is misogynistic. Right? The way that Paul tells women to, wives to submit to their husbands. That There's this idea that women should be seen and not heard. Or that women should be weak and submissive to men. This makes the church an undesirable place for women, that God has designed to be bold and assertive. Now, the the Quran might teach this, that the women should be seen and not heard, but that is not at all what Scripture teaches. The professor of Jewish history at, at Rutgers University says this, Open your Bibles at random, and you will notice something striking. Female characters abound. And it's not simply a lot of women. It's a lot of strong women. These women are the antithesis of what we might expect from a a patriarchal society. They are not passive. They are not timid and, and submissive. But active, bold, fearless, and assertive, they're also not what we would expect on a contemporary Near Eastern literature, in which women generally do not play leading roles in the narrative. In fact, if you think about it, the first people who speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are women. In a Jewish context, that would have been absurd, right? That would have been uncredible but the Bible holds women in high regard. In fact, I I think it's hard to be more pro-female, pro-women than Scripture is when we rightly understand how God has created us. And so with this false view of what Christianity says about women, let's put that to rest and and let's see what the Bible actually does say about gender roles and, and gender specialties. And this is where... We're going to flip back to Ephesians 5. And this is is the stuff that is hard for a lot of people, especially in modern context, to wrap our our minds around when when Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That, That word submit, to be submissive, to be subject to, rubs us the wrong way. But let me tell you that the submission that scripture speaks of in the relation to husbands and wives is not like the obedience a child owes a parent. It's not the same. This submissive role that, that wives take takes boldness. It takes trust. Takes faith not only in their husband, but in the God who is directing them and leading them. It is a humble deferment in trust. Now, what this isn't, this is not a call for women to submit to men in general. That's not what this is. This is localized. That wives submit to your own husbands. This is your God ordained, transcultural, gender specific responsibility in marriage. Because the way that you submit to your husband as he submits to Christ is going to help lead this this marriage in harmony and ultimately lead it to flourishing. See, because your sacrificial submission to your husband's imperfect leadership, though hopefully God-focused leadership, helps him grow into a godly and worthy spiritual leader of you and your home. And there is no doubt that this is hard work. But when you see what your husbands are called to, this ought to, it ought to make it at least easier in theory, Right? To see the, the way that he leads and shepherds ought to make me want to, as a wife, submit to his leadership. Now, husbands, look at what the Apostle Paul says about you in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He goes down in verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. No, he's saying here that husbands, you are called to sacrificial leadership. That in laying your life down for your wife, for your family, she flourishes. This is not patriarchal male mentality. This is not like a a a go-get-me-a-beer mentality. Male Male superiority is antithetical to biblical husbandry because the call for husbands is to come and lay down your life. Like Jesus did to the church, you have the responsibility to cleanse, to wash, to nourish, to cherish. And when we think about it, men, this typically isn't our, our, our default mode of operation. We're pretty good at thinking about ourselves first. And so just as it is difficult for women to be called to submit to their own husbands, husbands, it is a difficult and high calling for us to lay down our lives for our wife. But it is through this relational dynamic of servant leadership from the husband and trustful submission of the wife that this is how we fulfill the calling to subdue creation, to create and cultivate. And in doing so, we bring glory to God together. Now, there's a tendency for us to look at this, how God created and be dissatisfied. Right? Because what we read about in Genesis chapter 2, right, this, these dynamics between husband and wife that seems sort of idyllic, And that's because the way that we see this has been frustrated by sin. Now in in Genesis chapter 2, this mutual submission where Adam is laying down his life for his wife and Eve is joyfully submitting to her husband, this was incredible for them. This was life and marriage at its best God was most glorified when this dynamic was at play, and they were deeply enjoying one another. But this didn't last long. See, the first thing that Satan attacks is this created dynamic between husbands and wives. It's the first thing he goes after. Satan attacks God's creation by getting Adam and Eve to abandon their God-appointed gender roles. Do you realize this? In the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, what happens here? Satan comes in as a serpent, and he he starts tempting. What what happens here, Satan is speaking to Eve. He's telling her, hey, hey, this fruit that God doesn't want you to have, you should really go get it, because God's really just holding out on you. Now, if Adam was really living into his gender specific role to lead and to lay his life down, to, to wash his wife with the water of the word, he would have said, Hey, Eve, that is not what God said. The serpent is twisting the truths of God and to say something else that is untrue. And so Adam fails to lead his wife. He sits back passively as the serpent seduces her with the fruit from the, knowledge of, uh, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He fails to wash her with the water of the word. He, he fails to flood Eve's memory with the truth of what God has really said. While Eve subjects herself to the leadership of something else. She follows the leadership of the serpent. And in following the leadership of the serpent, she leads Adam to sin because what she eats, she wants him to eat as well. And because of this happening in in Genesis chapter three, gender roles have then since been confused and frustrated and complex. Instead of completion, it's morphed into competition. It's become exploitation, where we see sinful husbands being bullies, abusing, manipulating his wife in self-serving ways. might be verbal or physical or sexual. He's abusing his God-appointed, gender-specific role to lead wives, they abuse this by using sex to control and to manipulate her husband. It's a power play to assert dominance in the relationship. Or in a sinful husband unloading the responsibility of his wife and his family onto his wife. Right? He's apathetic toward the flourishing of his wife and their household. And she, in the void of his leadership, sinfully wants it that way. At least in part. She accepts that leadership. In a sense, if he's not going to do it, somebody's got to do it. She accepts that leadership, and, and, and in doing so, she's okay with leaving him in the dust. There are all kinds of perverted expressions of marital dysfunction, and, and all of them trace back to Genesis chapter 3. This was a big pit to fall into. Right? Moving forward from Genesis chapter 3, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope for marriage. Right? That there's always going to be this dysfunction But the only way for this design and marital completion could be restored was for Jesus to come and to demonstrate both of these roles himself. In our absolution this morning, we heard from Ephesians chapter 2. I think this this is one of the most important passages for women in understanding what it means to be submissive to their husbands. Take a look, if he, uh, Philippians chapter two. For, actually, uh, I'll just read it because you probably don't have it up on the screen. I forgot to tell them. Uh, f- gosh, Philippians chapter two, verses six and seven says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Remember the stuff about the Trinity at the beginning, right? Jesus being fully God. He's one of the three vital members of the eternally happy Trinity. And when God is discussing this plan, even before marriage has been created, even before the fall of marriage in Genesis chapter 3, God is talking, God the Father is talking amongst the Trinity and saying, hey, we're going to have this, this problem later on down the road, right? This design that we have for marriage is going to be frustrated by, by sin. And, and I have this plan to save humanity from their sin, but Jesus, I'm going to need you to do me a favor, and without skipping a beat, Jesus is 100% on board. He says, whatever, whatever would glorify you the most, Father, I'm going to do. God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to send you down. I'm going to send you down to earth. You're going to live a perfect life. You're going to be both God and man, 100%. And you're going to show people what it looks like to submit. And Jesus says, I I would be delighted to submit. Now, even when it was hard, think in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is crucified, he's praying to God. He knows what's coming down his his path, right? The cup of God's wrath is coming to him. And he says, God, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. But if it would glorify you, if it's your will, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna submit to you. See, this is the kind of bold submission that Jesus had toward God the Father. And not just in being a helper. That, that's the language that, that, uh, that God uses in Genesis chapter uh, 2 that, that the wife would be the helper, that Eve would be the helper of Adam. And that's not a, a, diminu- to, a diminutive title for her. But it is diminutive that Jesus, in a sense, would be a servant. In fact, the Greek, when it's translated correctly, Jesus comes as a slave. So we see this in Jesus and his submission to the Father. And in submitting to the Father, he comes and he takes the role as the head of the church. That Jesus embodies sacrificial leadership to its fullest degree. That he would give himself, that not only would he spend his life, give away his life as while he's living, but he would give away his life in death. As the true head of the church, Jesus takes responsibility for his bride, he pays the price for her sins, even the sins that are related to our marital failures. And Philippians 2, 8 goes on to say that this earned Jesus' death on a cross. You see, Adam gave up a rib to get his bride. Jesus gave up his life. And when, when Adam got his bride, she was beautiful, right? His, his wildest fantasy coming true. But Jesus gets a bride who's broken, sinful and dirty, and he says, I'm gonna love her so thoroughly, so, so fairly that she is going to be purified. I'm going to love her, and in loving her, she's gonna become beautiful. And to accomplish this, Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed in order to mend what had been broken in the fall." See, this is what we come to the Lord's table for this morning. We come to see His His blood shed for us, His body broken. And we're told, Scripture tells us, that by His wounds we are healed. By the work of Jesus being broken in bodily form, all of creation is being redeemed, even our marriages. That He is restoring God's good, created Order Now the, the only way that husbands can lead like this on the daily basis, the only way that, that wives can boldly submit to their husbands if they keep this gospel, this truth about what Jesus has done for them in sight. Because Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us in a bigger and truer extent. See, Jesus comes and he brings about the flourishing. He reinstates marriage as completion, not competition. And so, what Jesus is doing is is mending the marital roles. He's he's showing us that, that there is completeness in marriage. Now, I have a final closing thought here for the singles in the room. I know it's easy to be overlooked in a series on marriage. Now, what I'm saying here is not that you need to be married in order to flourish. I'm not saying that you need to be married in order to be complete. Because Jesus redefines singleness. Jesus, as he walked the earth, he was single. Nobody was more satisfied on earth than Jesus was because he had this union with the Father and the Spirit, right? Still being a member of the Trinity. Now what Jesus does in the gospel, he he may not promise you a spouse, but he does promise to bring you into that joyful union of the Trinity that you can share in the joy that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has together. And what Jesus tells us that what you're ultimately looking for, right? The spouse that you have a hunger for isn't, isn't another human. What you're hungering for is ultimately me. That Jesus is the true and better spouse. He's the one who lays down his life. He's the one who comes in joyful submission to the Father so that we might flourish. Father, we thank you for the gospel this morning. We're thankful that that in the great fall of humanity where sin entered the world and and brought complexity to everything, that you did not see this uh, as something to be tossed out. You didn't wipe out creation and start afresh. You had a heart to renew and to redeem what had been broken, Father. And as a room full of sinners, as people who feel broken, we are grateful for that truth that you are mending us this morning. Father, would the wounds that were imparted to your Son be wounds that heal us? Would we find joy in the unique roles that we have as men and women? Father, I pray that you give men the ability, the heart, to love their wives and lay their life down for them, and for wives to have a joyful and trusting posture to submit to their husbands as he submits to Christ, who is the head of the church. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.